So welcome. Hello. This is Spotlights. It's the podcast series for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And on today's episode, I'm really happy to welcome Evan Barry. So Evan, welcome. Great. I'm, Thanks for having me. I'm proud to be here. Uh, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your relationship to the study of religion and ecology, specifically religion and climate change. But first, I, I guess I really want to hear about some of the teaching that you've been engaging in, because you're at Arizona State University, where environmental humanities is just booming and buzzing. Uh, so what's going on there lately? Sure. So I feel really lucky. My position here uh, is technically in environmental humanities, even though I'm located in a religious studies faculty. I guess my business card says environmental humanities because they want a person who is able to connect uh, the study of religion with all of the other dynamic stuff that's happening on campus in the Department of English and in history. We have something called a school of social transformation where a lot of work uh, that would normally be in like cultural anthropology or uh, like critical race and gender studies is located. And so all of those folks are connected in, in interesting ways. And I, um, I really like the model we, we have here. Uh, with respect to teaching, um, there's a couple of, of undergraduate courses that I, I've already uh, sort of dived into. One of them is called uh, Sustainability, Nature, and Religion, and that's jointly listed between the School of Sustainability and uh, Religious Studies. And, and then right now I'm teaching a grad class called Religion and the Anthropocene. I'm really jazzed about that. That's my, um, that's my most favorite thing I'm doing right now. Nice. That sounds great. Yeah, especially developing kind of new classes that are out there on the cutting edge of where the research is at. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, and, it's, uh, it's a good blast. The students are really responding. Yeah, that's great. Especially in Arizona. I mean, you're in a desert, so it's like a desert humanities kind of initiative happening there. I think well, deserts get short shrift too much. They do. Um, one of the really early works that I might call environmental humanities is this book. Uh, it's by um, Joseph Wood Crutch uh, called A Desert Year. And it's a, he's a, a, an evolutionary biologist who got a fellowship um, at the University of Arizona back in, I think, the late 1940s. And he just wrote, he rented a house outside of town and he wrote about it. And it's a lovely meditation on philosophy and deserts and biology. I mean, that's a background theme that is uh, ripe for further work. That's so great. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, we're starting to enter an era where this kind of interdisciplinary work is finding a niche. And it's not just something to be held against you that you've been crossing these disciplinary boundaries. I hope so. Uh, yeah, I hope so too. Small steps, but it's definitely in the right direction. Um, so, you know, along with the stuff you're doing now, I'm always curious how people got into this work, mm -hmm. precisely because it's so interdisciplinary. I feel like there's not always a lot of incentives coming from academic institutions for people to cross these kind of boundaries. So what was it in your life or in your studies where you started to think these are the kind of issues I need to be focusing on? Yeah, I mean, I think there's actually a moment I could point to that I got interested in this topic. Um, as an undergraduate religion major, uh, we had a, a senior seminar on theodicy and I wanted to write in my paper for that about the intersection between Darwinian thought and um, explanations of evil. And 
this whole question of the the parasitic wasps in Darwin and and how much how upsetting those were to him and sort of how you account for a a world where there's so much violence uh, and offer it sort of a theological richness and I got a lot of negative feedback on that paper maybe, maybe it wasn't well written you know I, it was you know I was still learning how to how to be a writer at the time but the categories just didn't compute for uh, the professor I had at the time who was trained um, you know his PhD is from the early 1960s he was really thinking about the history of religions just working with different categories and so you know I'd been studying uh, ecology and environment also as an undergraduate and I didn't see that tension and the fact that I ran up into leaders who did who felt that tension made me gave me an incentive to try to, to push a little bit on those boundaries nice like something's here on this growing edge yeah I remember hearing something similar from a friend who uh, was interested in studying psychology and goes to a psychology professor and they're like, oh no, no, this is religion. Like, okay, go to the religion professor and they're like, no, this is psychology. Right. Okay. Well, I guess maybe I'm doing something new here a little bit. Right. Yeah. And it's just amazing how much uh, these studies have kind of blown up over the last 10 or 20 years. But in the nineties, it was relatively unheard of uh, to have like a career oriented around this kind of intersection. Absolutely. When, when I, so there are a handful of folks in the religion and environment world uh, who trained not with the folks that were established in the 1990s. So uh, obviously, Bron Taylor and Mary Lavin Tucker and a few other people, uh, Laurel Kearns, were already working on these issues and, and had, a, had a visible uh, body of, of scholarship at that time. Um, but then there's a few of us who sort of found our way into it from other quarters. Uh, and I think one of the, the real positive things that's happened over the last 10 to 15 years has been that um, there's now such a pluralism of approaches that there's a, there's a bit more of a ferment in how you can think about the issues and what uh, students who are training in these fields get, right? They're not just getting two or three dimensions, they're getting... 10 or 15 dimensions, which I think I didn't really get uh, at that stage of my career. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's so many more perspectives, so many more uh, people work on things. And also avenues for publication have opened up a lot more. Uh, so yeah, it's nice to see, because then there's going to be more spaces for the next generation coming up to engage in this stuff as well. And obviously, as the uh, crisis is getting worse for the environment, I think people are going to start paying attention to these uh, sides of it as well. Yeah, I think that, that the environmental humanities will be an increasingly large swath of what we think of when we think of why humanities education is important. But I do think that there are still challenges for people working in the environmental humanities from a religion or religious studies perspective, um, that there are a lot of people interested, say, for instance, in dystopian and apocalyptic literatures who would want to talk about religion, but don't think or frame those issues in the same way as folks who come at it with a more formal training. So it's, we're not done with sort of those tensions yet. So I really do think one of the reasons why there's so much activity and interest in this issue is that it's onto something, but then I still think there's some unresolved uh, questions around what the place of religion is in the environmental humanities writ large.
Yeah, that's true, right? Because it's it's kind of like environmental philosophy, environmental literature, history, and then people are like, oh yeah, re- religion's covered in all those. Like, well, yeah, right. it's covered in those, but we also have some of our own methodologies and our own history, our own texts, and it might be part of it. But uh, yeah, religion's always kind of the last to be included. People are, are kind of wary of it because of its presence in the public sphere, right? They have a bit of an allergy. Uh, right. to religion. I know that's a big part of your work also is engaging religion in the public sphere just in general. Uh, do you see any really, what are the kind of biggest obstacles you see to getting religion on a more acknowledged or having people talk about it more, talk about it more on its own terms and not just part of these other disciplines? What are some of the places we should be pushing? Yeah. So uh, I'll actually later this evening be teaching in the graduate seminar I in, uh, mentioned earlier and we're reading Anna Gade's book, um, Muslim Environmentalisms. And it's a great book, uh, recommended to all. And she identifies this problem that you raise in a really clear way that I, I appreciate, which is that there are the, the, the concept environment or the, the idea that there are normative commitments called broadly environmentalism is often taken for granted. And then those commitments are connected to other things like cultural differences or traditional environmental knowledge or uh, religious traditions. And the mismatch there is often, there's a a lot of uh, complexity and a lot of it is political complexity about how those are connected. So she's tracing the ways that development discourses and sort of global finance it wants there to be something like a connection between Islam and environmentalism without necessarily wanting to take on board the way that different, quite diverse Muslim communities might not share those broad scale international normative commitments around the environment. So that, that question to me around how um, the, the normativity between religion and environmentalisms as a plural category flows back and forth, uh, that, that to me is really a, a major research frontier. That's great. Yeah, kind of deconstructing what environmentalism meant to begin with. So yeah, at this point, I think like 1960s environmentalism, now that's so solidified, everybody just takes that for granted. And in my teaching, I always have to tell people, like, if it's environmental ethics, I'm like, this doesn't mean environmentalism. That's right. one of the things we're looking at. But I'm sure you've heard stuff, you've seen things on TV, and you've heard things from different people, and kind of the pop culture idea of like tree huggers and stuff like that. I'm like, it's, it's much more complicated. And especially when you get into religion, like kind of like the creation care movement, right? With some Christians being like, it's not really the environment for us, it's creation. Right. Right. That's going to frame these issues in a very different way, which might have some positive overlap, but it could have some tensions as well. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So that's good. That's a good place to push. And a tough one, because at this point, it's just so ingrained in people's assumptions that uh, they're like, no, I think I know what environmentalism is. Pretty well, sure. And, you know, in the United States, these questions can be really impoverished because we tend to frame everything as a, as a Manichaean struggle between one side and the other side of the culture wars. And that kind of binary framing is so uh, lacking in nuance that all of the variety of ways that people both on the political right and the political left uh, have 
ideas and commitments and affects that connect their spirituality with their ethics, with their, their understandings of what the world is, that that's not just environmentalism. It's a whole range of things. And there's points of overlap that often get left out or there's points of divergence that get silenced because either you believe or don't believe in climate change. There's just so, there's so much more going on than our media framework is able to talk about that. I think those are important questions to deal with in, uh, in this field and in the academic space, right? In the university classroom. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And about climate change in particular, uh, obviously that's, uh, you know, maybe the issue that looms largest among all kinds of environmental issues. And so, so heavily politicized, um, but also just the, the science of it hasn't necessarily been communicated in a way where the general public has very good access to it. And so I'm thinking of some of the fires, right, that have been hitting the West Coast and Arizona lately. And you can kind of see this debate in the public of people wanting to say, this is climate change. And people are like, no, it's not. It's And they try and uh, reduce it to more local things, which are definitely part of it, the suppression of indigenous land management practices, for instance. Uh, so I'm wondering how you engage issues of climate change in particular in the classroom or kind of in public facing scholarship. Yeah, I think the way you put it about this debate between different groups who say that it's either universally it's climate change or that it's not climate change and it's in fact local issues is related to what we were just talking about, about the culture wars, right? There's this is, isn't binary that fails to appreciate a lot of what's going on, right? Of course, climate change is not merely the presence of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's also the, you know, the depletion of carbon sinks in, at the global scale and also at the local scale. It's the kinds of economic adaptation strategies that communities come up with to deal with the fact that ocean acidification is weakening their fisheries reserves. So all of that, it's such a dynamic multifaceted issue that it doesn't really help. I mean, yes, the fires in California in the summer of 2020 are intensified by climate change. Climate change didn't uniquely cause them. And being able to think probabilistically, right, that fires are more frequent, the season is longer, they're more intense because the, there's more drier fuel uh, and there are more hotter days over a longer period of the year. Like those, those kinds of, um, in, they're not linear causalities, right? They're probabilistic causalities and people really struggle with that stuff. And being able to have like informed public conversations where we can accept that it's, it's not linear, but that it's... Um, correlative is is really tricky that, that i think that's uh, a place we should all be pushing in our in our public voices right which then means having to soften some of those uh kind of political biases and be willing to see some nuance instead of being so afraid oh if i acknowledge this part of it then people are going to think i'm on this side of the aisle right if i say this one word people are going to say i'm over here and a little more willingness to be flexible and adaptable would be great pushing that in that direction seems very difficult, but that seems to be the thing with uh, the humanities, teaching people how to communicate, how to work through differences, through dialogue and mutual understanding. Uh, this has got to be the way. So nice to hear, you know, more people going in that direction. I'm wondering uh, at ASU, is there, what are the plans for building out 
uh, the religious dimension of environmental humanities. Is that happening more? Yeah. They're, they're, you're not just the token religion guy. Uh, no, I'm not. So first of all, already in the religious studies faculty, we have Hava Tarosh Samuelson, who has a really distinguished record of, of work on Judaism and the environment, uh, and also Todd Swanson, uh, who's um, published a lot on this topic. He works on Quechua people in the Ecuador and the Amazon, uh, Amazonian region, uh, and a, a lot about the relationship between plants and, and communities and the, the role of language in shaping that. So there's other really interesting folks just in my local department. But then more broadly across campus, there's other stuff going on. Um, because ASU is so committed to innovation, sort of things are constantly changing in terms of how collectives are organized on campus and uh, some some big picture changes are, are going on. One of those is the creation of the Global Futures Laboratory. It's sort of a, an umbrella um, collective on campus that brings together the School of Sustainability along with a number of other uh, pieces. And one of the initiatives in that is the Human Factor Initiative, uh, which will focus on the environmental humanities and try to connect work in the environmental humanities, including and especially, uh, I think it's called uh, sustainability, uh, ethics, and the sacred, that that is a dimension of the human factor that they'll try to be um, keeping in conversation with the work they do on, you know, global environmental science and, and, and sustainability science of, and policy. Nice. That's great. Yeah, I appreciate that. When a commitment to innovation is including innovation in religious studies, it's not always where innovation goes. <laughs> if you ask somebody, what do you think of your innovation? I don't know, science and technology. Well, and we need to, we, uh, you know, we in the humanities in general and we in religious studies in particular really need to fight to get our, our place at that table. Um, but I have found here at ASU that if, if, you, if you get to the table, people really listen to you and, and, and work with you and, and find ways to, to collaborate on these topics. That's great. And the more that happens, then other people can kind of use you as the model. They're like, well, at ASU, they're doing it. We don't want to be left behind. So yeah, one, yeah, let's hope. I see they have me a few places, not not that many. And of course, I'm always concerned uh, that the kind of urgency of our situation demands a lot of kind of rapid transformation. Um, and uh, especially these last few years, I think a lot of people are feeling that. So there's always this extra sense we need to push fast and uh, innovation. Great, but it needs to be quick innovation, too. Yes. Yep. We need innovation around immediate, rapid divestment from fossil fuels and decarbonization of the economy. And those things have uh, strong cultural dimensions that people in the humanities are able to speak to in the ways that the folks working on the solar engineering side of that equation, you know, that's not their, that's not their specialty. Right. Talking about like the way oil has worked its way into our culture, petrocultures right. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, and the way that apocalyptic imaginaries are driving our love of fossil fuels. And right. yeah, that's just a little, little beyond the average solar engineer. And both of those things are places where the humanities have a strong contribution to make. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm curious, what kind of publications and things do you have out recently or maybe something forthcoming? Not, you know, there's all these big issues we're talking about. Publications uh, sometimes seem very small and insignificant, like, oh, it's a line on uh, our CV and things like that. But at the same time, 
these kinds of things are helping to inform a lot of people and it's building the field and definitely helping younger scholars realize that there's a niche for them. Uh, so always happy to hear about kind of new, new books and articles. What are you sure. working on? So I'll tell you a little bit about what's just on the horizon and then about what I'm working on for down the road. Great. So um, the project that I had been working on at American University for a few years called Religion and Climate Change in Cross-Regional Perspective uh, wrapped up in the, the very protracted process of getting two edited volumes out with the university press is uh, we're right at the finish line of that. Um, David Haberman is editing one of those volumes uh, on called Understanding Religion or Understanding Climate Change Through Religious Life Worlds. And it's sort of about um, the intersections between adaptation and uh, religion and cultural change. Uh, and then the other is called uh, Climate Politics and the Power of Religion. And I'm editing that. Uh, these are both from Indiana University Press. They'll both be out sometime this, this winter. Um, and the volume that I'm doing uh, is around the engagement of religious actors with climate politics, but then also the ways in which uh, especially national scale religious dimensions shape uh, debates around climate change differently in different parts of the world. So you know, we're very familiar with the role of religion in sort of constraining the American debate around climate change. Uh, but that set of constraints looks really different in nations as diverse as the Philippines and Brazil and, and India. So we have chapters exploring those, Trinidad as well. I'm just thinking about that as a, as a comparative issue. So that's, that's what I've been working on until uh, I literally will be sending the manuscript, the final copy of the manuscript off later today. Anyway, uh, right. And then uh, I'm at the early stages of a, of a book project about religion and fossil fuels. I'm thinking about petrocultures in, in comparison, uh, thinking about this question of religion and uh, the, 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 the imaginary tools necessary to the work of decarbonization. Nice. Are you looking at a particular tradition or area? Uh, I'm looking at several cases and sort of how I conduct the research in a, in a pandemic and post-pandemic world is, is a little messy. Uh, I did a bunch of field work before the pandemic in Norway uh, I've done some here in the United States uh, and some in Guyana, in uh, which you know they just found massive offshore uh, oil holdings that that uh, Exxon is producing um, already, uh, and those are really changing the political landscape in a religiously tense uh, country. And so I'm thinking about these questions of how existing patterns of religion are complicated and intersect with. Uh, the arrival of the petroleum economy and what we can learn from that and how those uh, lessons might point in different directions for a, uh, a deconflicted religious future. Mm, nice. I like that. Deconflicted. Nice. Not all peaceful getting along, but deconflicted. And yeah, that's, that's, I like that framing. More hope. What, uh, what was uh, going on in Norway? Uh, well, I don't want to spill the beans because I'm still writing about it. True, but, yeah. you know, obviously, N Norway is uh, of the of the European nations and of most of the wealthy nations in the world, 
uh, the United States excluded, one of the largest um, democracies that produces uh, fossil fuels. And so it's a, it's a funny exception in a lot of ways to the assumptions we make about what petrostates look like. I think the um, the idea that Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia are the natural political environments for uh, major oil producers, and maybe even the United States makes good sense in that category rather than in the same category as as Norway or Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this question of how we think about the relationship between religion, politics, and oil uh, looks really different in different parts of the world. Nice. Oh, that's going to be great. I can't wait. I'm I'm jazzed. I just need to get uh, I need to get the stupid pandemic thing out of the way. So <laughs> work on it. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, even for research that's not fieldwork oriented, it's harder for everybody just to go to the library and do things like that. So right. yeah, it's it's a it's a tough one. I think good for some. I have some students that are surprisingly good at finding anything online. And you mentioned something. They're like, oh, no, I can't get you a free PDF. I know where I know where that's at. So yeah, they don't. Cool. They don't seem to be too hampered by it, but for fieldwork, geez, I can't. Yeah, can't well, imagine. and also uh, the kids are all home from school. Uh, you're teaching your courses from your, you know, guest bedroom. Like all, all that kind of stuff <laughs> just makes the whole uh, equation harder. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah. It's good to be sympathetic with one another. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Evan. I uh, I could I could chat with you for a long time. We'll have to have you back periodically to check in, see what you're up to. Awesome, because you're always doing such cool projects. Thanks, and, I appreciate uh, that. Always like hearing your voice on uh, Twitter, uh, kind of you know getting in the fray. Uh, really representing yeah. some good perspectives there. It, it's a bad habit. I try to turn into a good one sometimes. <laughs> That's I think the best way to do it. Yeah, so it's not just for procrastination. There Maybe getting. Uh, getting some truth out there a little bit. Let's hope. Let's hope. Anyway, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Okay. All right. So thanks to everybody for tuning in and uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. So bye for now.